Welcome to Who's Talking. We're coming to you from a special location, the Ames Courtroom at Harvard Law School, for a special conversation with a man who served on the Supreme Court for 28 years. During that time, he dealt with some of the nation's most important and controversial issues, from abortion to affirmative action, from the death penalty to who won the 2000 presidential election. Now, in his first sit-down since his retirement from the court, I get to ask him about all of it. I worked a lot on this question, Alex. Has so, Anaya done to that? <laughs> are you always like this? Are you saying parents are wrong? Yes. Will you come back? Yes, okay. of course I will. Justice Stephen Breyer, welcome. Thank you very much. How are you enjoying retirement, or don't you think that's where you are right now? I think it's, it's not a question of enjoying. I mean, the virtue of the Supreme Court, the virtue for a judge, the virtue for a doctor, is you have a job where you have to give your best every day. A doctor doesn't say, oh, I see, this patient, I'm so tired, I don't think I'll really treat the patient well. You, same with a judge. Every case is important to the people involved and maybe to many others, so it calls for your best. And, and that, as you get older, is a major plus. It's a major virtue. And so now what I'm doing here, I have retired eventually, you know, the cycle of life, the human condition does catch up with you, and you feel it's about time to retire. And so what is it that I am trying to do? I want to, I feel I have learned some things. I hope so, I hope so, because I want, I don't want to dictate, but I want to say, look, I have learned some things, you know, say that subtly, uh, so you don't provoke a reaction, and try to use those uh, in order to improve the situation, if that's possible. Active justices work even over the summer. When the court starts its new term, the first Monday in October, mm -hmm. are you going to miss being there? Yes. You are? Yes. Why? Why? Because when you think something through in a problem, uh, you have a chance to express your view, and then you may have an impact. And uh, I've always enjoyed it. I might have an impact with the books I write. That's far, far out, an impact with a book. But an impact as a justice, you talk to your fellow colleagues, you talk to uh, in the conferences, you end up trying to produce something that at least five, and we hope more, uh, can uh, uh, join. Uh, and then, if it works, you've done the best you can in this small area of law to make it a little bit clearer or a little work a little bit better. And that's a satisfactory thing so, for me. So if you're going to miss it and you think you're up to it, why'd you retire? You say, I'm 84 years old. I've done this for a long time. Other people should have a chance. The world does change. And we don't know, frankly, what would happen if I just stayed there and stayed there. How long would I have to stay there? How long uh, are people going to keep in the political world? Uh, disagreeing and so forth and not being able to find a, who would be the next person. And I owe a loyalty to the court. I owe a loyalty to the court, which means don't uh, muck things up. So, Do so things in a regular order. Maybe I'm reading more into it than you're saying, mm -hmm. 
I sometimes do that. But, <laughs> but it seems like your part of your calculus was you wanted Joe Biden to be able to name your successor. Well, I certainly want someone to be able to. And you tell me you're the expert. You're yes. the expert. What are the risks? Because I don't know. If I stay there another year, another two years, you know, I'm not Methuselah. <laughs> and uh, even another three years, will it be possible for a president to nominate and to have confirmed my replacement? That's the kind of thing that's in my mind. Well, well, wait, wait. There have been delays, you know, when the parties split between control of the Senate and control of the presidency, and sometimes long times pass. And I would prefer that my own retirement, my own membership on the court, not get involved in what I'd call those purely political issues. So the fact that it was a Democratic president and a Democratic majority in the Senate played a role. You have to be, did it play some role? Could have, but it would depend on what the Republicans were. You, you really think that there was a possibility if the Senate was taken over by Republicans mm -hmm. that Joe Biden could have nominated somebody and the Senate would simply have refused to confirm any of his nominees? <laughs> Do I think that's a possibility? I get my information from the newspapers, which aren't always accurate. But I think reading those newspapers, they suggest there is a possibility. I don't know. Having said everything you do about loving being on the court, the fact is you had a bad final year. Uh, it, some of the most important cases on the court, abortion, guns, uh, the power of the EPA to regulate the climate, you were on the losing side. Was that frustrating for you to lose important case after important case? Yes. What, how frustrating? Very frustrating. I mean, does it, do you grit your teeth? Do you? No. What you do is, is uh, what I learned from Arthur Goldberg when I was his law clerk, and I've tried to live up to it. And I learned it as well from Senator Kennedy when I worked for him. You do your best, you know? And maybe people will agree, and maybe they don't. And maybe you'll win, and maybe you'll lose. And then what you do is you think about it for a while. I can go back to Joanne and say, oh my goodness. Your wife. I, yes, I just don't know how, the, but there we are. And then go on to the next thing. Go on to the next thing so that you can do a decent job on the next thing. But it must and be you just keep going. But it must and be painful because we're not just talking about theoretical cases here. We're talking about yes. cases that really affect people's lives. Yes, yes. And believe me, thinking of some of the cases you mentioned, I'm not sure you can think of an argument that I didn't think of. <laughs> but but uh, uh, yes, I, I thought I wanted, uh, I thought I had a correct point of view there. I did. And of course I was disappointed. Of course I was. So, now, there's lots more to this life in this country. And there are a lot more ways of bringing people together. Take us inside the court. We like to talk mm -hmm. about a six to three conservative majority. Does it ever feel like separate camps? Yes, sometimes, sometimes. Less than you think. 
Less than you think, because, uh, but I can't say never. You and others like to talk about the 28th year. I was there for 27 years before. <laughs> now, during those 27 years before, actually, uh, we were unanimous about 40, 50% of the time. And the five fours were about, mm, I don't know, 15%, 20%, sometimes 25. And it wasn't always the same five and the same four. But you contrast the 27 prior years yeah. to the 28th year. Yeah. What was different in the 28th year? I lost a lot. <laughs> you said it. Because I thought that 28th year, I thought we had some cases that I, that I thought were very important cases, and I, I was very particularly sorry we lost them. Abortion, you named them. Uh, guns. Guns. EPA. Right. Well, EPA, yeah. Well, administrative yeah. agencies. Yeah, administrative agencies and, and probably religion cases. But I guess the question I'm trying to get to is, mm -hmm. as the majority in this 28th year, yeah decided cases, important cases that you disagreed with, did it ever get strained personally? What happens is we get on well personally. Um, example, when Rehnquist was there, after the conference, where with two 5-4 decisions going either way on matters that were important, we go to lunch together. So we're up in the dining room having a jolly conversation, sort of a pleasant conversation, a pleasant conversation. And I say to Rehnquist, you know, isn't it amazing? Here we are at lunch having, you know, a rather nice conversation with each other. It's sort of we're enjoying it. And just half an hour ago, we were, and Rehnquist says, I know, half an hour ago. He talked like that. He said, half an hour ago, half the court thought the other half was out of their minds. <laughs> You see? But, so, we're, but we're getting, we, as people, as people, we get on. Are you suggesting that in the 28th year, you didn't have those jolly conversations? No, after? we did. You did? I mean, maybe a little less jolly, but not, <laughs> I mean, I have not heard people in that conference room uh, uh, scream at each other in anger. That's what I try to tell the students. I say, don't do it. You think you're right, they think they're right. You start getting really angry, you know what they're going to think? Oh, she has no good argument. That's why she sounds angry. And you'll move in the other direction. And not Senator Kennedy. If you want to persuade somebody, listen to what they say. Get them talking. And when they talk enough, you will hear something you agree with. And when you hear something you agree with, you say, oh, what a good point. Let's work with that. And if it works out, give them the credit. Because if it works, there's plenty of credit to go around. And if it doesn't work, who wants the credit? Credit is a weapon. And take 30%. That's good enough. Don't try to be a hero to your normal supportive group by losing 100%. Let them scream that you didn't do well enough when you get the 30% but take that 30%. Let's talk about the Dobbs decision, specifically that overturned uh, Roe v. Wade. How damaging do you think the decision to say that women no longer have a right to abortion, how damaging do you think it has been to the court and to the country? Well, the court went down in approval ratings, down to 25%. 
You don't know how long that will be lasting. You don't know. And uh, uh, did I say in my dissent that it would be damaging? All right. How damaging to the country do you think it's been? Well, what did I say in the dissent? We had three of us writing a dissent. We thought it was, for many, many reasons, harmful to the court. And we thought, for many reasons, it was generally a harmful decision. We thought it was wrong. And uh, five people thought it was right. So the truthful answer is, at this moment, I don't know exactly. There are people who spend a lot of time on this matter. I can say it is a very important thing, this right to abortion. And I think Casey's a better opinion as a, from a legal point of view than, than Roe. And I am very, very, very sorry uh, about what happened. I've certainly said that. In your book, The Authority of the Court and the Peril of Politics, you write that if people come to see justices as politicians in Rome, as junior league politicians, as you put it, that's going to be very damaging to the standing of the court. Yes. In your dissent on Dobbs, the three so-called liberal justices write, the court reverses course today for one reason and one reason only, because the composition of this court has changed. Are you saying that this wasn't a legal decision so much as it was the policy preferences of a new majority on the court, conservative justices who had been appointed by Republican presidents? You try, you see, you try to separate those two things. Uh, for most of my career as a judge, I try not to. The groups who are interested in politics, really in politics, they wouldn't say there were anything else. And they work on a president to get a judge appointed who will have an approach towards the Constitution and who will have an approach towards the law that they believe will end up in a decision that will favor what they politically a desired want. outcome. Correct. Now, the judge himself, and it took me a long time to understand this, but the judge himself does not think he or she is being political. What they think they're doing is they think they are following their, let's call it broadly though, their, an approach towards constitutional law, an approach towards uh, uh, statutory law, an approach that inevitably sucks within it what we might call political philosophy, which itself is hard to distinguish between political and philosophy, which sucks within it their own background. We do think what we think, right? And that is partly pure jurisprudence, partly political philosophy, partly the way we brought up, partly what we think about how the Constitution of the United States and the government of the United States and the Supreme Court of the United States fit among the governing political institutions. Uh-huh, political, political, all right, huh? And, uh, Harry Blackman said to me when I first came on, yeah, he was my predecessor, you will find this an unusual assignment. <laughs> and my God, it is. And, and uh, uh, he did, he did. And the, the, the point is they have to decide in a country that has law, 
and has had this law for two more years and decades and centuries, where do we go? How far? To what extent, if we th uh, think something different, uh, do we write that difference into law? Hmm. And I think not much. <laughs> but somebody else might think a lot. And I have two weapons on my side, even though I'm not there. The first weapon I call time. Time. There are lots of unwritten mores and rules in the Supreme Court about where you go. You say? About, as Sandra told me. Sandra Day O'Connor. Yes. We were great friends. God, I miss her. But the, 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 uh, you said, look, nobody speaks twice in conference till everybody's spoken once. That's an unwritten rule. And another one, tomorrow is another day. We might have been the greatest at odds in case one. Well, case two, we're the greatest of allies. And case one has nothing to do with case two, you know, unless legally they're connected. Right. Okay? And that's an unwritten rule. And time passes. And as time passes, my God, for three years, David Souter said, you're frightened to death. And that applied to me, too. And uh, Douglas used to say five years. And that probably applied to me, too. <laughs> and then you sort of get used to it and you do your best. But th the point is, People who have a, well, this is the way, this is the way. It's, I've got it, point one, point two, point three, that is the way. Ah, they will discover that the world doesn't quite work that way. And are there people on the court now who say, this is the way? You better ask them. <laughs> because I'm saying, I hope not. <laughs> and, and, uh, but you're not uh, saying no. You start writing too rigidly, and you will see the world will come around and bite you in the back because you will find something you see just doesn't work at all. And the Supreme Court, somewhat to the difference of others, has that kind of problem in spades. Life is complex, life changes, and we want to maintain insofar as we can, everybody does, certain key moral, political values, democracy, human rights, equality, rule of law, etc. And to try to do that in an ever-changing world, if you think you can do that by writing 16 computer programs, I just disagree. In his majority opinion, Justice Alito wrote this, it is time to heed the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Since then, voters in Kansas have voted to reject the idea of eliminating uh, the protections for abortion from the state constitution. There was a special election in upstate New York, Congress, uh, and, and the Democrat won almost purely on the issue of abortion, and you are seeing this flood of young women voting to register for the midterms. Is it possible that Alito is right, that this should be left to the ballot box? No, well, that has nothing to do with the should, but I think that has a lot to do. The reasons against leaving it to the ballot box now is we have had 70 years, 50 years, 30 years, where the law of the United States was fairly clear that women had significant rights to obtain abortions. And a lot of the criticism of that opinion 
focuses on the change in that respect. In his concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas said that having taken the action that the court did in abortion on, in Dobbs, that it's now time to reconsider the court's decisions on contraception uh, and on same-sex marriage. Is no, he right? Uh, Alito said in his opinion that this case did not affect other cases. In other words, that it was not uh, because we're deciding this the way he wrote. Uh, that does not mean other, ca other cases will not be affected, such as the ones you mentioned. It turns out that Justice Thomas's wife, Jenny Thomas, was a very active participant, both at the White House and in several states, in trying to overturn the 2020 election. Do you think that that's harmful to the standing of the court, especially when Justice Thomas was the only justice to vote to side with President Trump on the issue of whether he had to turn over papers to the House January 6th committee? Women who are wives, including wives of Supreme Court justices, have to make the decisions about how to lead their lives, careers, what kind of career, etc., for themselves. So on this sort of issue, I understand where you're going, uh, but I'm not going there. Ginny has to look at what she thinks for her, but I don't want suddenly to go back on the principle that the women in our world today are treated exactly as independent persons when they are looking for jobs or how to spend their lives. And, and that is something that over a long period of time, you know as well as I do, that that is a big plus. And, and uh, uh, all I'm asking is people who do think about these things, think about that too. I'm, May not I good. I'm not saying bad. I'm not going to criticize Ginny Thomas, whom I like. I'm not going to criticize Clarence, whom I like. And uh, there we are. In May, two months before the Dobbs opinion, uh, a draft opinion very close to what the court decided leaked to the press. How damaging was that both to the court and what impact did it have on the justices inside the court? Well, I don't know the individual impact. That was individual decision making, but I think it was very damaging. Was there an earthquake inside the court? An earthquake? It was very damaging because uh, that kind of thing just doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And there we are. Within 24 hours, the Chief Justice uh, ordered an investigation of the leaker. Have they found him or her? I have, not to my knowledge, but I don't, I'm not privy to the... So in those months since, the Chief Justice never said, hey, we got our man or woman. To my knowledge, no. Let's talk about the future of the court. This summer, Justice Alito made a speech in which he talked about the Dobbs decision. And here he is. I had the honor this term of writing, I think, the only Supreme Court decision in the history of that institution that has been lambasted by a whole string of foreign leaders. What really wounded me was when the Duke of Sussex addressed the United Nations and seemed to compare the decision whose name may not be spoken with the Russian attack on Ukraine. After what the court did in 
this last term? Can you honestly say, because there are going to be hearing cases on affirmative action, on voting rights, can you honestly say that any precedent is safe anymore? Sure. Marbury versus Madison is safe. <laughs> and I can think of probably quite a few others. Look, I'll show you something. This is the Constitution. Yes, I, I was going to ask you at some point whether you had your Constitution. No, no, it's in my suit pockets in case. Okay. How, how many at, Constitution, do you have them in various suits? Yeah. So that They we, all say the same thing. Well, I understand that. The suits don't all look the same, though. No, they but, look pretty shabby. But, but in other words, you don't want to, you don't have a Constitution on your bedside table that you take and put in your jacket. They're, they're no. in the jacket. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Just so you're armed. Yeah. Okay. Because people ask me questions and I can. Okay. It up. So you see it. Look, first words of Amendment 1 Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Alito thinks there are not as many people who are religious. When I look at it, I think at the time they wrote this, there were maybe four or five religions in the United States. And today there are a hundred. And he thinks perhaps we should pay more attention in the Constitution, even if we're secular, even if we're not religious, to those words religion. And I think what this means where you have a country with a hundred religions, and by the way, people feel very strongly about their religion, that we ought to pay a lot of attention, a lot of attention, to the need to decide cases in a way that will prevent social discord stemming from religion. And what he's doing during that hour is he's asking, in my opinion, people who are secular, as well as people who are religious, to think about this. Most countries don't have that word religion, or many don't, in their constitution, but we do and I think it's because of the need for social harmony. And he may think it has other needs, but he's asking people and giving some suggestions as to how they might think about it constitutionally. Well, I thought that was a worthwhile thing to do. And so I learned something from his speaking, and I thought he'd put effort into it. And what I learned and found interesting went beyond uh, the, the sort of soundbite uh, uh, Snarky as it was. Yeah, well, yeah, all right. Nobody's perfect. And, <laughs> and uh, I can do that too. But, but, but you I see? I want to talk to you about public opinion. Mm -hmm. You like to quote Alexander Hamilton, who said that the court does not have purse, like Congress, does not have the sword, like the executive, that it, defend, it depends on public acceptance for its authority. You talked earlier about That's right. public opinion. Right. Look at the Gallup poll, which has measured approval of the court since the year 2000. In July, the month after Dobbs, 43% approved of the way the Supreme Court does its job, while 55% disapprove. That's the most negative margin in the history of the court, worse than right after Bush v. Gore. You talk about social harmony, but when the court undoes a right that people have lived with for half a century, doesn't that very much shake the authority of the court? If you're going to be a judge, you do not worry about popularity. 
You do not worry about what the general public will say by way of public opinion. And if you do that, going over a very small edge here, uh, people won't accept your opinion. They'll think you're a group of politicians. And uh, there have been some bad days in the history of the court. When I start complaining about the ones that I didn't like, I think you know what Abraham Lincoln said when he read Dred Scott. He said, that's a shocker. <laughs> and you say, did I like this Dobbs decision? Of course I didn't. Of course I didn't. Was I happy about it? Not for an instant. Did I do everything I could to persuade people? Of course. Of course. But there we are. And now we go on. And we try to work together. I mean, it's a little corny what I think. But I do think it. You talk about the fact that after Bush v. Gore, there were no riots. But on January 6th of 2021, there were riots. As someone who has spent your life trying to make government work for everyone and believes in the American experiment, how do you feel about then-President Trump's efforts to block the peaceful transfer of power? I think the best thing that someone like me can do is to try to encourage the Constitution Center and the school districts of the United States uh, to teach, as I was taught, and probably you were taught, 12th grade civics, how the government works, and that they, those students, have a role in it, and they better participate and do it. Don't sit around and complain. Listen to other people. Don't scream at them. Talk calmly and try to get people together in a variety of ways. And if you think that's an answer to your question, I think it is. <laughs> but at, from the vantage point of being 84 and 24, 28 years on the court, how concerned are you about the state of the country today and the polarization and the fact that what, you know, you may have had one view of an issue, I had a different view, but we both agreed on the ground rules and that no longer seems to exist in this country, at least in some quarters. How, how discouraged are you? How worried are you about that? Worried. Devastated? No, because I've seen and I listen. I did work for Senator Kennedy. I did work there and I saw him say, ah, oh, you swing, we swing, we swing. But this and is, did, this is well, different. This isn't maybe. liberal conservative. Really, this is, is different than Bully Brooks beating up Senator Sumner on the floor of the Senate. Well, that was a pretty bad day. Yeah, yeah. Different when uh, you were too young, perhaps but uh, different than the Civil War, skip that one, different than 80 years of Jim Crow, uh, different than Vietnam for me, perhaps not for you. What are you saying, we've had bad times before? Yeah. yeah, we've had bad times before and we pull ourselves out, not, not to necessarily make everything perfect, but we pull ourselves out to make them better. And uh, uh, then during the bad time, and of course there's a lot to do, and of course it's difficult, but when, when the Senate that I used to work as a staff member in, yeah, that's different now. And it'll be different from it is now when the people who vote for the senators decide they want it different. And that's why I want those students to go out there and participate. Really? That's what this document's about. It's their country. And it's easier to say as an older person, but I say my friends, 
It's up to you now. Go do it. Justice, thank you. It's a pleasure as always. Over the years, Stephen Breyer has had his differences with Supreme Court decisions, sometimes pushing back with fierce dissents. But he says he remains an optimist about the American experiment, maintaining this is a country that still is based on human rights, democracy, and acceptance of the rule of law. Thanks for watching. Catch us every Sunday night on CNN and keep streaming anytime you want on HBO Max to find out who's talking next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.